Good afternoon, Fatima Al-Sayed here, your UMentor talk show host. On today's show, we'll be speaking to Kamel Laka, who is a sorcerer at JCPenney. Later in the show, we'll speak to Fatim Wali, a special needs resource consultant. This show is brought to you by Visual City. You can tune into the talk show every Saturday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And remember, if you have any questions for any of our panelists, you can always leave them in the comments section. Kamel, salam alaikum. Alaikum salam. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. So your career, you sort of went into what you wanted to do, but it was it took you in a different direction. So can you tell us a bit about how you started? Yeah, and just to kick it off, I actually I'm working at Target, but it's okay. JC is a good company. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> no worries. Um, yeah. So uh, my career uh, is pretty interesting in the fact that I started off in supply chain at Target. Uh, as an intern in 2010 and then started in 2011 in the mm -hmm. supply chain business. And um, one of the unique things about Target is we're a big company, so networking is really big internally. And I know when I was in school that I definitely wanted to be in a corporate company uh, just because I've done some programs where I've shadowed people at a corporation and, and learned about what they do and, and seen that I just really love the corporate feel. Uh, in general and, and wanted to take my path somewhere in the corporate landscape. So uh, started off in supply chain after my internship, loved the experience, loved Target. It was a very analytical role um, where I was dealing a lot with managing inventory for the 1800 stores that we had. So, you know, from a role standpoint, it was a pretty high responsible, high scope role right out of college dealing with, you know, mm -hmm. categories that would sell over 300 million uh, a year. You know what I mean? So dealing with a lot of uh, volume and just analytical. But at the same time, too, I really had the chance to network with a lot of people. I, I mentored a, a lot of people in my role. And I really found that my energy really came from people and working with people. And then, you know, I shifted into becoming a sourcer slash recruiter, which is what I'm doing today. But again, it was something that I sort of figured out by networking within our um, you know, with, with the partners or many of the cross-functional teams that you work with, just meeting others and learning about what they do and then making my path and creating my own path at, at Target. Mm -hmm. And before you went into that, you studied something within HR, correct? Yeah. So it, yeah. So HR is very like vague in the sense that, you know, there are degrees that you can get in school. I did communications as like a background. So I really enjoyed that part of my degree. I did finance and communication. So the communication piece, really something I enjoyed just personally, it was a lot, it, they talked a lot about leadership, the different types of communication. And so I really loved that aspect of, of uh, my degree because I really, again, didn't know what I wanted to do with the communication piece. I knew finance was something that would probably get me into the corporate uh, area. And so yeah, communication was bits and pieces that helped. But again, it wasn't like something specifically I did to get into HR because, again, mm -hmm. I never knew I wanted to be in HR or wanted to be a recruiter or sourcer. Why did you enter into finance at first of uh, the HR department? Yeah, so my uh, interest in finance, actually my interest from a career standpoint first started uh, during my like high school, early college years. Um, my dad is an accountant, so he's a CPA. And so, you know, he works from home a lot with clients. And so, you know, whenever I'd see him talk to people or help people out with their finances from an accounting standpoint, it really inspired me. You know, I could definitely see that he was doing something 
with his career and he something he really enjoyed and he was passionate about. And I'm like, oh, okay, maybe I can do accounting because I, I really like what my dad was doing and he was really doing a good job helping others. So that's something that got me excited. And so I took accounting classes and I was horrible at it. It was just <laughs> not something that uh, I was good at or like maybe passionate about those concepts in accounting. Um, and so then I shifted into finance where there are still aspects you can do, uh, help others and uh, or help companies in that sense and, and be uh, financial there. And so then I took a degree in finance and then I ended up in supply chain. So mm-hmm. again, there's a lot of uh, soul searching that you can do within your uh, time in your junior year in like college or senior year or even sophomore freshman years as you try to figure out what you want to do. And so I had a lot of that in, in my background and I wasn't really sure. So. And what you were really interested in was the helping people aspect. Yeah. So that's really what I wanted to do. I even in my uh, like high school days, I remember I wanted to do become a doctor because I wanted to help people. Mm-hmm. And then I just was horrible at chemistry and biology. And again, <laughs> there are things that aren't just like that, that don't resonate with you well. And those types of topics didn't. So, um, so yeah, again, the, the, you're right. Just helping others really was something I wanted to do. So, and so let's talk about how you got there. Um, yeah. So how did you sort of make your way to that position of something that you really liked? Yeah. So, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier a little, mm-hmm. so I really found myself when I was a BA business analyst in supply chain at target, you know, what I realized was, you know, I spent a lot of time outside of my day to day job, you know, mentoring others, educating people, helping others in the role that they either were new or in existing role today that needed some assistance on certain processes or whatever. Mm-hmm. So really those just what I really found like, man, I get so much energy from people. And, you know, my my path, I guess, at Target would have been, you know, the next role would have been a buyer. I could have been a buyer for uh, certain categories at Target done well. I felt like that was something I could have done well. Uh, but again, the people aspect was important for me. So what I did was I networked with uh, people in HR because I knew HR, you dealt a lot with people, but I wasn't sure again in HR where I wanted to be. So there's so many areas that you can kind of uh, pick in HR in general right there. The, the generalist roles where you're dealing with talent internally, getting them to where they want to be in their career and promoting them to the next level. There are people that deal with compensation at, uh, at uh, the HR level. There's obviously the different types of recruiting teams too. There's campus recruiting that deals mm-hmm. people that are just graduating from school. There, there's experience recruiting. There's executive recruiting where, and then there's sourcing where where I would, am at today. So I networked with people in all those areas, and what I found was the sourcing piece is something that really, really attracted me. Um, and it and it was a brand, and it was still earlier on in its inception. I think recruiting is a lot more of a defined. Uh, role sourcing is still a growing role in the recruiting or sourcing industry in general and so I really uh, was intrigued about that role and also um, it was it's one of those roles where you work on a lot of different areas in the company from a recruiting or sourcing standpoint where in recruiting you might be siloed into one area like let's say I was a recruiter I could be just doing finance where today Mm -hmm. in sourcing I've done finance supply chain I've done um, merchandising. I've done pharmacy when Target had one. So there's a d- ton of different areas, visual merchandising, pricing, space and presentation, all these different areas within Target as an organization where in recruiting I wouldn't. So these kind of things intrigued me and, uh, you know, brand new team and the growth uh, aspects within the role really got me excited. So, so yeah, that's how I made it so, there. 
<laughs> so what's the main difference between a recruiter and yeah, a sourcer? That's a million dollar question, right? So everybody's <laughs> what, what's a sourcer. Everybody knows really what a recruiter does. So a recruiter typically deals, again, you're siloed in an area, let's say it's finance, right? So if I was a finance recruiter, I would have people that apply to a requisition at Target, whether it be internal or external. So let's say we had a senior financial manager at Target. People would apply to the role from an internal standpoint and then also externally. So what the recruiter would typically do is look at that requisition, which is where the job posting is, right? And see who's applied internally, externally, work with the hiring managers and get the person in their role. What I do as a sourcer is different. So my job in is primarily finding passive talent. So people that are in jobs at other places. So since Fatima, you love JCPenney so much, we'll talk about <laughs> JCPenney. So let's say there was a, a senior financial manager at JCPenney and uh, they're already in their role today. As a mm -hmm. sorter, I kind of look externally for talent. So I would reach out to that candidate wh wherever I would be able to find their information. Most probably I'll go to LinkedIn, right? Reach out to them. Uh, engage with them in a conversation, talk to them over the phone, get them excited about Target and uh, get them in play for that role from an external standpoint. So I don't look, so the recruiters will typically just look at that requisition or will look internally. But also what recruiters do is they work hand in hand with the sourcer because they want to get that external uh, lens okay. and also get people like the candidate from JCPenney in play for the role. So mm -hmm. that's what I would do. Again, there's a lot more to my role, but that's just like more of the basic differences. I go for passive talent in the industry. And one of the things too that a sourcer gets to do that a recruiter doesn't have time to do sometimes is get competitive intelligence and, and market insights, right? So because I'm reaching out to so many people externally, um, my knowledge from the market is a lot more well-versed in the industry than probably that recruiter because I'm talking to people at different companies, learning about what they do, how they're structured. I'm almost like a spy in a sense that like I'm giving them insight on what other companies are doing. It's not <laughs> illegal. I'm not doing anything haram. Like it's just anything I'm having for my conversations. But yeah. again, it's providing an intelligence that will help us make decisions. So. Okay. And then traditionally, how can someone get to where you are? Yeah. Um, so sourcing, in, well, I'll talk about recruiting and sourcing because they're very, mm -hmm. and, and I would say, you know, I could be a recruiter tomorrow. Like it's very similar with what we do for the most part. Um, so typically people can major in like HR related degrees at the university and maybe do like, so from a corporate standpoint, there are a lot of roles that like start at the staffing specialist role, which is more of like the day-to-day -day, like scheduling candidates for on-sites, prepping them for on-site mm -hmm. interviews, right? Getting them ready to come in and they just do more of that admit not an administrative work, but it's also a lot more just those requests that will come in. So it's like a support for a recruiter or for a sourcer, right? So that's what an HR specialist will do. So typically, um, some people at corporate level enter at that level and then go into recruiting or sourcing where, wherever they may go want to go. That's one path. Then the other areas in the organization for corporates, if you want to join at a different area in HR and then move into recruiting, that's a path as well. Uh, sometimes people actually end up interning in HR and I, that could be a very good path for people as well. And then eventually start full time in HR recruiting. And then there's also um the agencies out there right so like the robert half or like many of those com companies that deal more on like if you get a certain amount of people hired uh whatever they're making you make a percentage of that and so it's a lot more 
sales or like it's a lot more driven based on numbers and, and how you can do it which is a bit stressful my job today is more on the base salary standpoint where people that join like those kind of companies staffing companies typically um can uh, make like a percentage so it's just very it'll vary how much you make um by how much effort you put it's like more like those financial advisor kind of jobs right so you can take that path as well so there are many different paths you can take into mm-hmm. this career um so i would definitely explore that and then definitely when you're at the universities itself leverage your uh the 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 organizations within the universities that help you get job placements or can advise you on that as well because you know i'm out of school for the last seven years or so and so things might have changed obviously in universities with that so mm-hmm. and hr is very broad right like how do you find your niche yeah it just depends on what gets you excited um you know i absolutely like live and breathe my job i love it i will go on blogging websites see what's new in the industry on on finding talent my role also has some technical components to it mm-hmm. i don't really go on linkedin and reach out to people and get them excited about target what i do also is i do like technical searches on like x-ray searching a website so what i do is i go on google i'll put in a bunch of boolean logic is what it's called Mm-hmm. and try to dig into a website like LinkedIn or Twitter. So I've even tried to recruit people on Twitter or uh you can find people what they do on Facebook and and uh, find their contact information through Facebook or Twitter and then email them. So you know like how you introduced me for <laughs> like a professional stalker, right? Like I really have a lot more ways and tips and tricks on finding people's contact information than I've ever had before but that's doing a lot of this technical and and learning behind the scenes. So there's always in any area you go in your career there's always development, there's always growth and there's always things you can learn about what's going on in the industry and I think that for me comes to passion about what I do. So it's mm-hmm. all about passion and what you're really what really excites you. If you're want to be a HR generalist and you feel like you want to get people at target that's in their role today promoted into some area the other area of the organization or in the same area you can definitely do that right if you feel like compensation and working on compensation is something that pa- gets you excited you can definitely do that you, if you want to be on the team that lays off people you could do that i i'm on the other side where i'm hiring people right so mm-hmm. it just depends on like what gets you excited and to be honest for you to be a good recruiter or sourcer you really have to be passionate about what you do right i can't sell target to a candidate if i'm not confident in the company that i'm working in you know what i mean so you that passion about what you do and what you're selling really transfers over the phone when you're speaking to a candidate and they will know if you're not passionate about a company that you're recruiting for so it's really really important to be passionate about what you do and really what i'm doing at the end of the day is sales right i'm selling yeah. an opportunity at target where they're already in a job today right so how do i make them move And one of the biggest complexities about my role is moving them to a Minnesota, right? Like a location like Minnesota. So the nice thing about Canada, if you're recruiting in Canada, it's, it's cold everywhere in Canada. So, you know, like the weather isn't as big of a concern as it may maybe if you move up more north it would be, but like for for Minnesota for instance, if I'm recruiting people from the Bay Area in San Francisco or recruiting people from a New York market, I'm moving them to a location like Minnesota, which people really don't know much about Minnesota besides the fact that it's cold like there's a lot more selling points to that location so it's also my job to be well versed in the location i'm recruiting for uh, from to sell them on the location and the job so it's like a 
two-pronged approach for me when I'm selling them the opportunity to target. And then I have to dig into their background from a financial standpoint, learn how much they're making today and also sell them in on salary at target, mm -hmm. which is another complexity of the role. What other complexities are there? Yeah, there are, there are some, there are in general roadblocks. I mean, sometimes we'll, we'll talk to candidates that, uh, you know, location is a driver, there'll be, uh, you know, growth is a, is a driver as well. So let's say they want to join Target as a senior manager. They want to know when they're going to become a director next. So how do you sell them in on the growth of the company? How do we focus in on development as an organization? A huge complexity for us is how things are titled, right? So let's say a senior manager at Target, their title is compared to maybe a manager, uh, sorry, like a director at a smaller company, right? So like, let's say there was a company like, Loblaws. I don't know why I'm saying a Canada company, right? And <laughs> and from a like a company standpoint, they might be like a lower level than like a, a Walmart at at in Canada, right? Like mm -hmm. they're two different companies, right? So somebody at the senior manager level at Walmart may be considered at a director level at Loblaws, but somebody at a director level at Loblaws may be hired in as a senior manager at Walmart. Do you see where I'm going with this? So basically, if we were to take that into targets consideration, somebody at a director level of Loblaws, I'm selling them in on a senior manager role at Target. So they're not aligning from a talent, from a title standpoint, and you have to sell them in on how the org is different, how much value they're going to be providing from a financial standpoint. So mm -hmm. as a senior manager at Target in finance, you might be dealing with $2 billion. I'm making up all these numbers, but let's say you're doing $2 billion in uh, management in finances where somebody at the director level at Loblaws might be do doing $2 million as well, right? So it's like selling them in on the title, selling them in on the location, selling them in on the um, company. So there's a lot of factors that you consider when you're hiring people at Target. So those are some roadblocks. Okay. Um, and what kind of skills should you have in order to be able to do this job? Yeah. I tell you the number one thing is passion uh, and I can't speak more to that, but basically passion is a big piece. Um, you don't have to be super organized. I think sometimes people think that you need to be like the, the type A person to be a recruiter. Mm -hmm. I'm probably a type Z, like I'm not like 100% organized. Um, so how, how, uh, so, you know, it works for me. So I, I wouldn't say like organization, something that's top of mind. Again, I'm type, I'm not, I'm exaggerating, but like, I'm working on becoming more organized. That will help me be better in my role. But again, mm -hmm. you don't have to be super organized. I think um, it's good to have, like, be a good person on the phone, right? Be a good at sparking conversations, digging into people's background. If you're passionate about talking and helping others, I think this is a good opportunity or role for you to explore. Um, other pieces are the analytical. So there is aspects of looking at numbers, looking at uh, those Boolean searches, right? Digging into things there. There also the analytical piece to the role where you're looking at numbers, right? So let's say I had a financial role or two financial roles open, right? And to get those two hires in the financial roles, I need to reach out to 50 people where I know after I reach out to 50 people, I'll get 30 people on the phone. After I get 30 people on the phone, I'll get 15 people to the recruiter step. From the recruiter step, I'll get maybe five people on site. And once I get them on site, I'll hire two people. So if I know in the past that those are my funnel metrics, right? Like how I need to hit those numbers. Then every time I approach a new financial role that I'm recruiting or sourcing for, I would go at it from that approach. So I know mm -hmm. like my secret formula, my recipe 
for me to get those many hires, how many people I need to reach out to and how much effort I need to extend for a role. So there's those numbers aspect to the role that you need to pay attention to as well, um, which is another key component of the role. And is this a job that you have to be in the office for? No, so great question. So <laughs> I've been with Target for seven years. Um, I've been in sourcing recruiting for probably four years. And so after a year into my sourcing role, my parents wanted to move to Orlando. And so part of me and who I want to be and where I want to be, I want to take care of my parents. So I wanted to shift and move with them to Orlando. Now with uh, Target, this was a brand new thing for them. They're like, We've never really supported anybody from a from a sourcing standpoint in a remote market like Orlando, where there's no office or headquarter. But they gave me a shot. They said, "Hey, let's figure it out. Try it out for nine months. If it works, we'll continue it." And it's worked ever since. I've been with, in Orlando for three years, so it is a job that you have uh, aspects of working from home or or being remote. A lot of companies nowadays, like I know Google, has reached out to me before about working remotely for them. Um, so a lot of companies in general do have remote functions for sourcing or recruiting. And another piece too is let's say a headquarter for a location like a target was in Minnesota. If I wanted to be a field recruiter and recruit for people in the stores, then I could do that and work in remote markets. So there are a ton of job opportunities in general. I know for Canada too, it doesn't have to be only where the headquarters is because there are field recruiter jobs uh, out there in the industry where you can explore and, and be in different locations, which is the nice piece. Or if you're being recruited for from a company that does allow working in remote markets or working from home, then they definitely allow it. So that's another opportunity uh, to seize if that's something you want to do. So, yeah, I mean, there are pros and cons to working from home. Um, yeah. And we, I mean, we can go into that if you want, but basically they are aspects of my job that I enjoy for working from home, but I do miss the people going into the, the downtown mm -hmm. Minneapolis headquarters location, those, those conversations and those, the, the banter you'll have with your coworkers, like that I do miss. Uh, but what I'll tell you is when I work from home, I get to be in the location I want and I get to be close to family. And um, I really, you can sometimes be a bit more productive at home, although it sounds counterintuitive when the TV is right around the corner. But in general, like you can find ways to be a lot more productive at home as well. Now, does working from home sort of put a does it make it more difficult for you to balance your home life and work life? No, not necessarily. The thing that I like about my company or what I do is if I get the job done, I get the job done. Right. So mm -hmm. right now, uh, and another piece that's fun about my role is there are different projects you can work with outside of the sourcing piece. So right now I'm leading two people in India for target. So because of that, and I've also recruited in different markets and countries. So I've recruited in Hong Kong as well. So because I'm doing these different projects where the time zones don't align from a U.S. standpoint. So there'll be times where I might have to log in on a call at 11 p.m. Again, don't think that this is a thing that's expected for you, but it's more just me. It's something I wanted to do. And so I said, hey, let me do it. So let's say I do a call at 11 p.m. Or, or, or like 10 p.m. here because I want to talk to somebody in India or Hong Kong. What I'll do is if I have a late call, I'll just wake up later the next day, right? So I have mm. that flexibility from a time zone, like not from a time zone, standpoint, but from like a timing standpoint, I can work at whatever time I want to, to get the job done. And I have that flexibility and trust from my leadership, which is, which is important. So that is a nice piece of working remote. There are times too, where like, let's say I'll take like an hour off during the day and, and maybe go 
and get something done that I need to get done. And then I'll come back and maybe work an extra hour. So it, there is that flexibility that's nice. And also, if you're working on cool projects like this, um, you can uh, do it at different times. Another piece, too, that's nice, like my wife's family is from Toronto. So if I ever mm -hmm. want to travel with her to Toronto, I can just work from Toronto because it's the same time zone and I won't be taking any days off. So that's mm -hmm. the nice thing about working from home where you have that flexibility where you can work from. Well, what kind of cool experiences have you gone? And you sort of mentioned Hong Kong. Can you delve into yeah. that a bit? Yeah, so we have sourcing offices, uh, not like recruiting offices sourcing, but there's another title of sourcing where you're sourcing apparel, and that's like a different industry in itself. But basically, we have people that we need to hire in Hong Kong that work with the factories, let's say in Hong Kong specifically, to get product put together in those factories and sent to the U.S. To give you an example, some of those decorative storage bins that are made like hand-woven are made in the Philippines, let's say, right? And so we'll have people that work for Target in the Philippines to get that product into the uh, shipping containers and sent to the U.S. So we have people that work for Target across the globe. So Hong Kong was an area where we had openings in the areas I needed support. It, support. So I've done, that I've done that in the last few months here, supporting roles in Hong Kong, learning about the complexities of a market that... You know, I have no use, like I've never experienced in that space before. So learning about new markets, talking to people, um, you know, obviously there's a language barrier at times, right? So it's it's been an interesting uh, experience. I've learned a ton from it. Another piece too that I really, really love about my role is we're building a brand new sourcing, which is the recruiting sourcing I'm talking about here. Mm -hmm. We're building a brand new sourcing team in India, right? We haven't had any roles like that before. So what I've had the opportunity to do is lead the initiative of how sourcing is built in India and how that partnership looks like. So it's been a really cool opportunity for me um, to, you know, bring a team and bring a team together in India, help them develop in their career, help them partner with the U.S. So that's been a really cool uh, experience and a project that I've had to work on, which isn't something I do day to day in my like sourcing job. So it's been cool where you get to, as you develop in your career, you get to work on cool projects like that. Now, for someone who is in high school, do you have any tips for them, um, tangible yeah. steps that they should take yeah. to become would, a sourcer? Yeah. Well, to become a sourcer or recruiter, I would tell you, you have to shadow somebody. Like, I'm totally open for anybody to shadow me in general. I've offered it to people in my communities if they want to do a recruiting or sourcing job. Um, I think shadowing people is, is uh, definitely something you should do. You should research on your own, too. Like, go on websites that talk about recruiting or sourcing, see what, what the job is really about, some of that kind of tips and tricks in the industry today. Um, I think shadowing is the best way in personally. If you're, if you're even looking into any career or anything, you know, the resources like you mentor, I'm, I'm not, you guys didn't pay me to say this. I'm just saying it because <laughs> I really truly think this is a great venue or opportunity for people to, leverage and learn about people and other and the other careers and i think another piece too is leverage your community right like if you're in a community like orlando or jcc or any community or uh, in from a in general like leverage people in your community learn about what they do ask them questions I, everybody i mean i don't know anybody that would probably typically say no to asking them about their career or mm -hmm. no to like mentoring if if some companies don't allow it i get it but if some companies do. I think people would definitely be open for you to uh, mentor them or to, or not mentor them, to be their mentee or to yeah. shadow them in general for their work. So I think that's definitely a possibility.
Now, those who want to switch their professions, what approach should they take to make that shift? Do they need like certain certifications to get into yeah. the HR area? Right. Uh, for me, I think my team took a leap of faith. I proved that I have the, the raw talent to do the work, but I didn't actually know how to do the work. So it was a very unique thing for me where they're like, okay, we see Kumail is decent on like phone call or just in, in sparking up conversation. He loves Target. He's drinking the Target Kool-Aid. Like he loves the company. Like he, um, you know, he has what it takes to be a sourcer. So we're going to take uh, a chance and bring him onto our sourcing team. I think your best bet, if you're already in a company in general and you want to network somewhere, there's a lot of companies that may be open to allowing you to shadow or learn from others in the company as well. Um, and then making the transition into the role. So into those roles. So I would tell you, if you want to make a switch in your career, I think that's definitely a possibility. Um, and, and ask people, or sometimes you might have to start in a level lower than where you're at. So let's say I'm making, I'm throwing, I'm making fake numbers here, right? But let's say yeah. I'm making 50K or whatever, right? Right off, the, right off the bat in finance, I get promoted to senior financial manager. I'm making 65K. And then all of a sudden I'm like, man, I want to do sourcing or recruiting, but the pay is 55K and I'm going to lose 10K in pay. Well, at the end of the day, if you're really passionate about what you want to do, you might have to take a financial hit maybe in that situation. It doesn't always be that case. Like for me, I didn't take a financial hit. Mm -hmm. but for some people, if they do want to take a financial hit, move a, set, uh, move a step down and then go up in that pyramid, they can do that as well. So it just depends on what opportunities present themselves for you. If you're w willing to go for it then or be patient and move into an equal role, you can do that as well. So it just depends on how you want to take your career. So. And what kind of uh, things in your community are available for, let's say, youth to go in and things like job fairs? Yeah. Do you have stuff like yeah, that? Yeah, so I'm like, mm -hmm. so this you mentor thing is like something I'm very like passionate about, even though it's the first time I'm hearing about it and presenting about it. But basically, <laughs> essentially, like these kind of things are like, I like love it. Like, I think it makes so much mm -hmm. sense. I'm totally all about career and getting people to where they want to be. We've done some events in our Orlando community where we've done like, We've done a panel where we've presented in front of the youth in our community. We had even people at the age of 13, 14 year old come to these panels and, and learn about what people are doing in their careers today to help them decide what they want to be in the future. We've done that. We've done like a LinkedIn session. So I hope everybody after this, this interview today goes home and makes a LinkedIn profile because to be honest, in any industry you're in, I, the first thing a recruiter will do is try to pull up your face or your profile or look for you uh, to have that conversation with you over the phone. It's nice to have somebody's face in front of them. I know it sounds silly, but us recruiters like it. So like there, and, and also we are very used to looking at LinkedIn accounts to help guide us through their background. So if you ask me and you put a LinkedIn profile, or you put a, a resume in front of me, I would gravitate to a LinkedIn profile. Uh, mm -hmm. and that's just my recruiting recruiter instincts, right? So we had an event in Orlando where we helped them learn how to build a LinkedIn profile. We had other professions teach tactics and tips like resume writing or um, how to build um, your elevator pitch when you have a conversation or how to work with other recruiters. So there are tips and things that we've done in our community. So I would say, you know, a lot of communities can, do have people in their communities that know a lot about these things that can educate the broader community. So I would definitely push communities to do that and, and uh, help build the youth and help guide them in, in their careers. And as you look ahead, you know, right now in the job industry today, there's a lot of push for automation, right? A lot of push for technical, like data engineers, software engineers, where a lot of these things that they're doing might automate jobs in the future. So 
the job outlook ahead in this uh, tough market that we have right now is going to be even more difficult in the future. So how do you find the right jobs where you're entering in the right spaces where 10 or 20 or 30 years from now, that job will still be existing or it won't be automated. So that's another long discussion you can have with communities or people uh, mm -hmm. as they pick jobs in uh, and where they want to be in their future from a career standpoint and digging into things like that because it'll definitely be uh, an impact in their careers. So. Do you have any final sort of advice that you want to give? Yeah, yeah I think, um, you know, to all the people out there that do want to be a recruiter or sourcer, I'm, I'm happy to be a resource for you. I think, you know, as you are in your career today, if you're already in a job or if you're a junior in or a sophomore in university or even early in your high school years, like definitely leverage things like the U-Mentor, um, definitely uh, leverage people in your community and try to figure out what you want to do. Again, try to be passionate. Try to put an Islamic lens about what you're doing as well, right? Like for me, mm -hmm. one of my things about helping others was that it's from an Islamic perspective, right? I wanted to help people. And so with recruiting today, I'm helping people find jobs, right? So if you can, try to put an Islamic lens to what you do or if you mm -hmm. don't, then volunteer outside and, and put that Islamic lens if you can um, and help you pick your careers. But again, there are so many things and so many people out there that will be more than happy to help you in this journey of yours and take full usage of it. And one last piece uh, for all those people in college, when you go to a job fair, please prepare for a job fair. I've been to many job fairs before where I was not prepared and I regret it. So going into job affairs, I want everybody to take advantage of internships as well. Sophomore, junior internships are very, very key nowadays. And companies, when they're recruiting you right off universities, they really, really look to see if you have an internship or not, and that helps them make decisions. So those are my last two pieces of advice for all of those that are listening in or will listen in the future. But thank you for all you do, though. I appreciate it, Fatima. Well, thank you for sharing your interesting career path with us. Not a problem. Now, before we get to Sister Fatim, just a reminder that Umoja Soccer Academy session is in full swing in select cities. If you want an academy in your city, please reach out to us at info at umojaoutreach.org. And if you're just tuning in and you missed the first part of the show with Kamal Laka, you can always hear the replay on the UMentor website under prior talk shows. And while you're there, why not just subscribe to the iTunes podcast so you never miss another show? Fatim, salam alaikum. How are you today? Good, how are you? I'm good. Now your career path is almost like Kamal's where you went into something that you liked and it took you in a different direction. Can you tell us about how you started? Yeah, um, I started as a, an early childhood educator. So I, mm -hmm. I did the four-year program at Ryerson University for early childhood studies and in my first year, I was offered a position working um, part-time while in school uh, with the YMCA. And so I just continued on working in childcare. And as the years went by and I started, um, or I graduated and went to teacher's college, I decided that I would go into teaching and then from there into family services. And what interested you about ECA at the beginning? Um, well, as, you know, like being a part of the community here in Toronto, um, mm -hmm. volunteering was a big thing. And I always used to volunteer with, 
um, the children's programs. So mm -hmm. I was always interested in working with younger children and it just was a lot more fun than being in the adult section. So um, yeah. I started off just being very interested in, in working with children. And then um, originally I wanted to do social work and um, I wanted to be um, a social worker. And my parents were under the impression that that may not have been the best avenue for me. So I went with the other option, which was early childhood education. Mm -hmm. And I haven't regretted it since. <laughs> but you had initially the goal of becoming a teacher. Uh, yeah. So it was teacher or social worker. Mm -hmm. And when I was applying for university, my goal was to be a social worker. Okay. And then now, how did you get to the position you're in? Like you mentioned, it was a, it was a complete fluke. Um, mm -hmm. I applied for a position, um, a contract position covering a sick leave um, with a mental health agency who was looking for someone who had worked with children and families and who had worked with children and families with exceptionalities. Mm -hmm. um, and so I fit their role or what they were looking for. And so they hired me uh, for a six-month contract and I did well. Um, <laughs> they did provide lots of training because of, um, in order to do my position, um, I should mention that there is a particular certificate program that's available um, that you would need to have if you were applying to be a special needs resource consultant. Mm -hmm. um, and this particular part, it, you could do the program part-time is, um, allows or does, goes through the role in its, in its steps so whether that's program consultation individual consultation or training for children sorry for staff and families so it kind of goes through the three steps um, of or like the three areas of the role um, but I didn't have that certificate I had like I had my master's and I had done a lot of work around um, children's social skills and communication building and um, so they, yeah, so they took a chance. And then uh, when I did come into the role, because I was uh, missing some of those components, they did offer it to me um, to help fill in those gaps. Mm -hmm. Now, much like HR, ACE is very, very broad. What is it exactly that you're doing right now? So um, at the moment, I go into talking, I support Okay, so as a special needs <laughs> resource consultant, you get a cluster and each cluster has a certain amount of daycares in that cluster. Mm -hmm. uh, they can be private, uh, non-for-profit and um, city, uh, city um, run daycares. So uh, each daycare has a particular amount of children, whether it's some daycares are infant, toddler, preschool, school, uh, kinder and school age. Others are just... Um, toddler and preschool, some are toddler, preschool and uh, kinder. So each um, daycare spans differently in terms of uh, the children in their care. Um, most daycares will have, or most daycares can have from infants all the way up to uh, school age, which is 12 years of age. Um, so my role is to support the daycare. I go into the daycare and I support the room and the staff uh, with general questions, um, hey, this this part of our routine is not working. We've been noticing that the children are are not responding to this. Should we change it? What should we do? Um, and then the, the 
the biggest part of my job is supporting individual children. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, the big component of my job is that none of that can happen without parental consent. Um, parent consent plays a huge factor on what I can or cannot offer for families, uh, for staff. So once the parent gives me consent, uh, we go through um, all the paperwork and then we look at what the child needs. So whether that's a child needs to have an occupational therapist come out and assess their, maybe their gross motor skills or their motor planning or their vestibular movements, um, or uh, on the flip side, maybe this child needs to be connected with early abilities and will mm -hmm. apply for a speech and language consultation in the daycare to look at what language looks like in the daycare and what the staff can be doing to promote language in the daycare for this particular child. Or at times, even though it's for this particular child, it might support the entire daycare. Um, and then the other side of it is to build routines and awareness and social interaction. So I could then pro uh, provide visuals, um, trainings for staff to um, address how their, um, I guess how they approach the child should maybe shift so that they can get the most from the interaction with the child. And in that first consultation with the, let's say daycare, daycare center, uh, what information do they provide you about the child? Um, so initially they will, uh, they usually, I come in for the initial observation once I have the parent consent mm -hmm. and I usually just ask the, the staff what's going on. Um, why, like, you know, what, what are you looking for? Uh, what's going on with the child? What are you struggling with? Um, are there particular areas of strength? Are there particular areas of weakness? Um, it's a lot about getting to know the child, but it's also about getting to the know getting to know the child in that daycare space because a child could function completely different in a childcare space in comparison to the home, in comparison to the school. So I try to focus it in on what's going on in that program in those four walls for the time that they're there. And so the staff will then provide me with information mm -hmm. and they ask me, you know, like we're really struggling with the transition from school to daycare and we noticed that the first hour and 45 minutes is just a lot of like power struggles so then it's like okay so i would observe these power struggles and maybe look at you know what the staff are doing how the child's responding because every behavior from a child is a form of communication so that's the one thing that we try to during these consultations we're like okay what is the child communicating in this particular situation mm -hmm. yes he threw a chair and you know the table went flying but like what was he trying to communicate because whatever it is that is that he's trying to communicate is something real in his something he's feeling and something that is real in their life at that time okay and what is the most difficult part of that whole process uh, buy-in. Uh, buy-in would be the biggest thing. Um, often or not, uh, professionals are bound by their, um, by the colleges that they are, are a part of or the employers that they are employed by. So, um, you know, for example, children are hitting. Um, you're not supposed to forcefully um, construct, uh, uh, basically may, um, grab them. Mm -hmm. But the whole point is that if a child was running in front of a train, what would you do? 
you would grab them, right? So the whole idea is that in this particular situation, that's the metaphor. The child's running in front of a train. We're going to catch them before they, you know, get hit by that train. Um, but it's it's negotiating with with um, the, the for-profit centers or the, some of those private centers mm-hmm. to be able to say, you know, like, I understand that you have a hands-off policy, but, you know, the child's not able to hit and you can't uh, allow another child to get hit three times before you're like, okay, you're leaving the room, you know? So sometimes that hands-off approach has gotten too far where... Mm-hmm. You know, and children are just a fine balance. Yeah. And so finding or. um, Yeah, finding that balance in the educators and then you might have uh, one educator in the room who's like, yes, you're right, I'm going to do this. And then another educator in the room, because often or not, there's usually a minimum of two. Mm -hmm. Uh, You'll have another educator in the room who's saying, no, I'm not going to do it. I. I don't want to, or like, I'm, I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to get fired. Mm. So there's that part of it, um, which is difficult. And then the other part of it is when the parents um, often or not will feel quite defensive when the daycare approaches them to say, Hey, we have a concern about this particular mm-hmm. area or this particular um, uh, delay in your child. So whether it's communication or uh, even something as simple as toilet training mm-hmm. or not, there are some children who are so free and going to school and they're not potty trained. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, uh, that ends up becoming an issue like, oh, you know, we should start working on it. Okay. But you can work on it here at the daycare. I, I don't have time yeah. at home because, you know, I'm busy and often or not, a lot of these families are very busy. And so their days look like these children are in daycare from seven till six or seven thirty to five thirty, and you know then they go home and they have dinner and they take a shower and then, you know, and they just go. To sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then they have to do it all over again. So often or not, there's just this huge strain on on a system right now. So. And sometimes it could be that the parents are so obviously emotionally invested in their child that they don't really accept. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us about that a bit? Child development is such a wonderful, wonderful um, thing to study or to even see in front of you. Like you like when you look at a baby at like three months in what what they're doing versus their fourth month. It's only been 30 days, but yet their skills have changed so much. Mm -hmm. Same thing that when when they're three or four years old, if you change the way in which you approach them, the way you ask them questions, um, the way you comment instead of asking questions, um, it changes the dynamic of that relationship. And a child who who might not have been speaking all of a sudden has all these words because, you know, often or not, they might not be able to come up with the answer that, that you want. So they just stay quiet. But the moment you change the way in which you're asking them a question, all of a sudden they're talking mm-hmm. or they're pointing or they're labeling, you know? So you're right in saying that, you know, sometimes parents are like, you know what, he's just going to get there or at home he talks. I promise at home he does talk, mm-hmm. you know? And also what we expect of a three-year-old these days is, is far more advanced than what we were, you know, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Like, at three, children are expected to go to 
to daycare and then go to school and, you know, um, what they're expected to do at school. You know, you have to go put your backpack away. You have to be potty trained. You have to open your lunchbox. You have to eat all by yourself. You know, this is a three-year-old who's being expected to do these things. So often or not, sometimes you have parents who are like, he's three. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. well, I, I agree with you. Like emotionally as a, like, as a parent, I can't imagine if someone was like, your three-year-old is not doing this. And you're like, he's three, come on. I'm like, he'll get there when he's four. Um, and then the other part of it, which I forgot to mention is that sometimes as educators, as teachers, as professionals, we forget that when a child is born also plays a huge factor on their development and their expectations. So a child who was born January 1st, 2012, versus a child who's born November um, 1st, 2012, there's a huge gap between them because that baby who's born in January uh, or in January versus the baby who's born in November, like developmentally, they're on different trajectories, right? Mm -hmm. So taking that into account um, often plays a huge factor, but at times you have to also remind that to the professional to say, you know, he's born at the end of the year. So when his other counterparts were like six to eight months old, he was just born. So we have to take that into account. And often or not, parents are the ones who remind us like, hey, my child is born at the end of the year. So, you know, when he was, you know, like learning to lift his head, you know, other children his age were um, crawling or walking, mm -hmm. right? So, because they are a couple months behind. Yeah, like often I've worked with with um, with children in the same room who are the same age, but when you look at them, one is like three years and twelve months, and the other one's three years and one month. But the mm -hmm. expectations on them, because they're three, are very similar. Mm -hmm. Now, what's something that you wish you knew before you entered your career? I guess how wide uh, or how, how different or how many different careers are possible with my particular degree. Mm -hmm. um, I know that originally when I started um, studying ECE, I knew that I was going to get out of it. I knew like that was the reason why I went to teacher's college because I knew that I didn't want to work in daycare for the rest of my life. Um, not that there's anything wrong with daycare. It's just that I knew that that was where I did. I wanted to go further mm -hmm. and, and you know, I'm back to being around daycares or working with daycares, but the role has changed completely and I still have the same education. So I think, um, like I wish that, you know, I had known that going in, I mm -hmm. might have avoided the teacher's college aspect. <laughs> Not that I regret it, but you know, I could have gone straight into this as opposed yeah. to like my route in which I got to here was probably like the scenic tour <laughs> as opposed to the direct path. So what would be the direct path? The direct path would be that I graduate from doing my ECE and I go into the special needs resource um, consultant program. They're called, it's called different at different uni uh, universities or colleges. Mm -hmm. um, I know that at Centennial, it's called the Early Childhood Resource Consultant Program. Um, 
yeah, that's at Centennial. I'm, I know Seneca has it, but I'm not too sure what it's called there. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think George Brown also has it. And these are all college programs, of course. Yeah, because it's a certificate program. Yeah. Um, I don't believe that Ryerson or UFT or um, York offer it, but mm -hmm. I could be mistaken. And your position now is basically sort of giving the child care facilities the means to do something, correct? Yeah. It's like empowering the staff to be able to work with these children who have either been deemed difficult because of behavior or difficult because, you know, they require that extra support. Mm -hmm. And how do you do that? Is that difficult or is it? Um... So it's a lot of modeling and coaching. Uh, often or not, it's you have to get in there and like roll up your sleeves and you're in there. You're <laughs> with the staff negotiating like oh you know what you're right he doesn't like this so you know he doesn't like um water play but he likes sand so yeah okay let's move this experience over here to sand and we'll work on communication here mm -hmm. so like often or not it's a lot of modeling coaching with the staff but it's also like understanding like the staff are are really great once they realize that you're there to to seek out their professional opinion because you know they know the child despite all the difficulties with that child they really do know those children they know that you know like 3 30 to 4 15 is a really rough time for this child or they know that you know this child really doesn't like painting but they love playing in the wall in the sand table okay so let's just move all the experiences over here or let's use sand to to get him um so another one of the strategies we use for a lot of children who who have unwillingness to transition or participate in routines is first then. So first then allows the child to complete what you want them to complete. And the then is something that they want to do. So you would say like first lunch, if they don't like lunch, and then you would, so first lunch, then cars, because they really mm -hmm. like cars. So you're trying to reward them uh, for doing what you want them to do. Um, and then often or not, um, the then is usually the same thing, but if not, it, it gets interchanged based on what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not just one child that you're dealing with, it's like eight, 10? Uh, often in a particular room, I might have a maximum of two or three children on my caseload. Mm -hmm. um, we do cap it at five. So okay. if there are four, once we get to the fourth referral, if a fifth referral is about to come in, we observe what that referral is for. Um, and then if not, I will say no. And instead I will do a program consultation because like, let's say the fifth uh, fifth referral was for behavior, then I would say no. And I would do a program consultation to address like some of the um, struggles in the room and then think about how we can make program adjustments to address some of these um, difficulties. Mm -hmm. And is there any advice you'd give to the current, let's say high school, college students that could help them select their career? Um, well, for early childhood education, I would say it's, it's a lot more than just babysitting. It's mm -hmm. a lot more than just, I like children <laughs> because <laughs> Children these days are very, very complicated. They have complicated lives. They have complicated environments that they come from. 
complicated relationships that they come from as well. Um, so it's not just about loving children and working like I like babysitting. That's like, that's wonderful. And that could be the start of a very um, passionate career working with children in daycare settings, but it's never enough because a big part of it is starting to look at early childhood educators as professionals as opposed to babysitters and shifting that that mindset also needs to go towards it's not just about the children it's about teaching and learning um, you know with these children it's about exploring it's about you know providing these learning opportunities that children mm -hmm. that set the foundation for their entire life because what you do with that infant the turn taking the conversation building the communication with that infant is going to set him up for the toddler room which will set him up for the preschool room and then school age, kinder and school age like you are working with those foundations and it's a lot of work and it's a lot of hard work mm -hmm. especially when you have you know eight children in your group <laughs> it's it's a lot to take in it, i mean the ratios are in, have increased over the years mm -hmm. and so now you will have it's one staff for th every three infants and one staff for every five toddlers and then one staff for every eight preschoolers so it just goes up um so it's a lot of work mm -hmm. so that would be my advice for high schoolers and what's the most uh, rewarding thing you've done in your current position oh, in my current position or over your career <laughs> um oh Oh, um, one of the centers that I work, one of the centers that is mine um, is in a very, very rough area. Mm -hmm. So I forgot to mention, I work in Scarborough. And yeah. actually the area in which I work in is called Malvern, which is a very tough area. Um, so one of the centers that I was, or that I was working with last year, um, there's the room has changed significantly. But one of the things that we did was we had a room full of, imagine like a lunchroom, it had 30 school-agers in there, all like various ages. So you had the youngest being in grade two and the oldest being in grade six, I think, five, six. Mm -hmm. The huge age span, right? So, yeah. you know, when you think of a grade two versus a grade five, like the skills are completely different. Um, so there was a lot going on, children getting beaten up, um, parents wow. fighting with each other, police being called, like there was just a lot going on in that room. So one of the things that we were talking about were, you know, how, what do these children like, first of all? Um, and there, you know, there was a huge focus on these group of children really like basketball and these really enjoy art and these really enjoy dance. Okay. Mm -hmm. So how can we incorporate that into programs? So we looked at the program structure and then we are like, okay, how can we reduce the behaviors by changing the program structure? So they implemented a, something called clubs. And so every Friday children during the week from Monday to Thursday, they would, they would have to sign up for a club. If they didn't sign up for a club, um, they would be put into the club of wherever there was space. So it was teaching them responsibility and um, a big part of it was that they would have to, you know, um, if they chose to be in basketball, they would have to stay at basketball. 
if mm -hmm. they chose to be in dance, they would have to stay at dance. Um, so that was one thing that we implemented. Another thing we implemented was the 30 children were never in the lunchroom together. Okay. Um, which changed the dynamic dynamic significantly. Um, first 15 would go immediately outside and then the second group of 15 would stay inside. And, you know, they found that more space per child decreased some of the fights, you know, because mm -hmm. there weren't 15 children fighting for the Beyblades or the cube blocks to make Beyblades. So just changing some of those dynamics really played a factor into that room. Mm. And one of the staff actually was, she was thinking about quitting and she didn't. So I think that would be my, yay, she didn't quit. Yay. Like, <laughs> I think for her, I think just seeing the success of the program, like mm. she used to dread coming to work. That and, there was actual real change at that point. And from something as simple as, okay, we're only going to have 15 inside and 15 outside. Like, and yeah. every Friday we're going to do something fun. And it's, it's not like each staff had a talent and it was great to see them be like, you know, I'm really good at cooking. Okay. So you're going to do something related to cooking every Friday. I'm really good at dance. So I'm going to do something related to dance. I'm really good at sports, um, mainly like football and basketball. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do that. And then I think the fourth staff was writing or art, art. There you go. She did art. So just using the like often or not early childhood education and daycare programs have very limited resources mm -hmm. but just in in like helping the staff feel empowered there were there was all of a sudden this um, abundance of resources in terms of what they could use and yeah it changed the program significantly so i barely did anything except for start that conversation and tell the supervisor like something needs to happen in this program but it um, created so much um, effect on all of the, their lives. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. And, and, you know, when you see them being like, ah, things are great. Like I was just there two weeks ago for a, a little guy in the preschool room and the school age staff was like, are you here to see us? And I was like, no. <laughs> and then he was like, yeah. Cause I was like, there's no problems. And then he said it with a huge <laughs> smile on his face. So, um, yeah. And then the other thing I would mention, sorry, as my piece of advice yeah. for homeschoolers, early childhood education is not only something that girls do. Um, I know that predominantly in the past, it's, it's been um, a profession that women tend to drift towards. But mm -hmm. in my experience, uh, for the very few males that I have worked with as early childhood educators, they have been wonderful sources of of like admiration for the children in care, especially mm -hmm. the little boys. Like they get to see these men, um, you know, engage in, you know, uh, relationships with both themselves, with their co-teachers. Uh, mm -hmm. They get to see, uh, you know, them every day, they get to play with them and they don't have all these expectations and, you know, positive role models are like so important on both like, I'm not saying that it shouldn't, like, that women shouldn't go into it, but often or not, males tend not to because, you know, there's this negative um, talk with, oh, you're in ECE, a male ECE. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my biggest, biggest, biggest piece of advice is if you feel like you can do it, do it. Don't, don't avoid it just because 
um, you think that you're going to like the negative stigma that goes with it because mm -hmm. it's not it's not and as someone in the field um, you know especially in school age rooms and some of the kinder and preschool rooms males just do so well in the program they they bring this balance into the program that yeah you know like not to like discredit any of the work that females are doing but i just want to it's a different that. dynamic yeah and, yeah and it's important it's an important mm. dynamic that children need well thank you so much for talking to us today no problem thank you for having me thank you everyone for listening to the show on youtube live and if you didn't listen up, you can always catch up on our previous shows on SoundCloud or on our iTunes podcast. If you want to reach out to the speakers from today's show or any of our previous shows to ask these professionals any questions you may have, please visit our online platform at umojaoutreach.org slash unleash the future slash groups. Or you can just visit the new mentor website and hit the link for online platform.